Welcome to the Unplugged Podcast with Debo Zarco, episode 22. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Unplugged Podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. And this is the place where you'll hear inspiring interviews with athletes, activists, authors, artists, yogis, and everyday paradigm busters as we journey together into the infinite depths of the human heart to remember, through the power of story, who we all are at the core of our beings. And I'm your status quo crushing host, Debo Zarco, welcoming you to your weekly dose of authentic and purposeful inspiration. Now I'm going to start by um, telling you that last week I spent the entire week at a really powerful semi-silent meditation retreat just up the road from where I live. And to say that it was life-altering is an understatement. Now I'll just explain a little bit about it. Um, from my understanding, the foundational principles of study that was that were passed on at this retreat have actually been passed down from a very powerful lineage of self-realized teachers dating back to the writings of the Bhagavad Gita. And this lineage includes Paramahansa Yogananda, who influenced the likes of my personal guru, hero, all-around amazing human being, (laughs) Mahatma Gandhi. And as many of you know, Gandhi lived his life based on the beautiful principle of ahimsa, which is the Sanskrit word for nonviolence towards all living beings in thought, words, and actions. And I know that you hear me speak a lot about that with great regularity because that's something that is so important to me. It's so important for me to live my life that way. And it's something that I'm continually aspiring to move towards. For me, the action part is pretty easy. The words are pretty easy, but thoughts, mm, not so much. I'd be lying if I said that. I don't have icky thoughts sometimes. Um, Definitely getting better though. And after this retreat, I can already feel a major shift. So um, as you can probably imagine, this week of ancient pure meditation study that I just experienced has taken me much, much deeper into myself. Um, Actually, more than anything I've experienced to date. And for any yogis out there listening, this course of study included the highest Raja and Kriya Yogas, which uh, are the most powerful methods for quietening the fluctuations of the mind. So... Not only do I already feel more focused and loving than before, I also feel really grounded, I feel calm and centered with a really heightened awareness of myself. So I can already really quickly feel when my mind starts to wander down a path that's not conducive to modeling my divine mentor, Gandhi. Now I also feel more connected to others without the highs and lows that come from being open to their moods and belief structures. 
And it's really amazing because things that normally triggered me in the past just don't do that anymore. And I have to say, it's, it's actually quite humbling to witness this dramatic shift in such a short period of time. We were also taught many um, really powerful energy preservation techniques that have actually really helped me immensely to remain connected without feeling drained, which um, I confess was actually a, a frequent issue for me prior to this course because I am so sensitive to the the light and the darkness out there in the world. So this has been uh, incredible. Like I've just, I have so much more energy, so much more energy because I'm not pulled in any one direction. And I don't, I, let's just say I don't derail like I used to, at least now anyway. And I'm, I'm imagining that as I continue with this process, it's only going to get stronger. Um, and lastly, I'm feeling more connected spiritually to a much greater power than ever before. Dare I say God or the divine source or the universe or whatever you want to call it. Whatever term you prefer, I have to say that it's incredibly beautiful as well as deeply humbling. So um, I, I'm telling you all of this because there's been a, a really deep and profound shift within me, and you may start noticing some subtle differences in my demeanor throughout this podcast. I can guarantee, though, that they're all going to be good. I'm on the path to self-realization in this lifetime, so you and I will always get the absolute best of who I truly am at my core. And you know, this entire podcast was created because I love this planet and all of her beings so much. And I know that there are so many others out there like myself who also care, but who just feel alone in this world of, of duality. And I, you know, I also truly, truly and deeply believe, I, I believe in the massive potential for humanity to achieve oneness or unity consciousness, or the end of duality and separation, whatever you want to call it. And we're heading in that direction. And we're actually going there really fast. So I'm just doing my personal part to continually unveil the best of who I am and expose that to all of you out there listening so that you can jump on in and join me. And you can join everyone I interview on this journey towards unity. So... That was my week last week. You know, just another week of transformative personal growth that has taken me that much closer to nirvana. <laughs> so how was your week? <laughs> anyway, I just want to also share uh, a really inspiring thought from a new listener, Cheryl, who I believe from her email comes from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And she wrote in response to something I said in last week's podcast interview with Dominic Hurley, where I shared my perspective on the meaning of surrender. And I'm just going to take a little snippet from her email. And she writes, the comment I would like to offer is another perspective on surrender, a concept that comes up a lot. It comes from the Latin sur, 
meaning above, and render, meaning to melt down to its base constituent. So for me, to surrender means to go above or beyond letting go of something that is no longer needed or serving me and move on to a higher level. This removes the sacrifice part of it that so many people fear and moves it to a higher plane of intention. Like David White's comment, a moving sideways into the light. Now, what I really like about this perspective is that is, uh, is where she mentions the removal of sacrifice that many people feel is at the root of surrender. And when we reframe surrender to mean moving beyond something that no longer serves us so that we can move to a higher level in our lives, it actually feels, it feels more empowering. So I thank you for sharing your, your thoughts, Cheryl, because they really are quite powerful. And hopefully this beautiful nugget of wisdom will help some of you out there to embrace the power inherent in surrendering to life. So now we move on to today's podcast guest introduction. And today we speak with an absolutely amazingly inspiring woman with an incredible sense of joy for life. Today we speak with Jan Phillips who is a multi-passionate woman with a beautiful heart of gold. She's a visionary thought leader, award-winning author, dynamic speaker, and she's also the co-founder and executive director of the Living Kindness Foundation. She's a former nun, an art-inspired activist, and someone who spent a year traveling the world on a one-woman peace pilgrimage. And on her website, she writes... Jan is known worldwide for her keynote speaking, workshops, and multimedia video presentations. She creates a unique multi-sensory experience, weaving humor, storytelling, captivating imagery, and music to inspire and ignite insights for life-changing action. Jan shows people how to access their wisdom, activate their own creative energy, and communicate with passion and power. Wow. So you might be wondering how I found out about this amazing woman. So let me tell you, I was actually contacted by Jan's personal assistant, Felicia, on my birthday last year. And she wrote a short email telling me a little bit about Jan's work, which was just enough to pique my curiosity. And she also invited me to contact her if I was interested in interviewing Jan for a future podcast. So of course, I played, I paid very close attention. I mean, really, come on. Someone contacts me on my birthday telling me about someone doing amazing work in the world. Of course, I'm going to take notice. I actually don't believe in random chance. And I truly believe in a divine plan. And then, of course, it's up to us with our free will to either follow it or not. So, needless to say, I followed. So I emailed Felicia and we spoke on the phone the following week. And I got really excited with the opportunity to connect with someone I'd not heard about until Felicia's intuitive initiative. And incidentally, Felicia is really awesome. So Jan and Felicia make a pretty awesome team. Now, when we finally arranged a time for the interview at the end of January, I found out that Jan had recently said goodbye to both her life partner 
as well as her mother within a few short weeks of one another. And it was also an interesting interview date for me because it fell on the four-year anniversary of my own mother's untimely death. So needless to say, we had an interesting pre-interview chat prior to starting the recording. And when we were speaking before the interview, um, you know, I was feeling a lot of deep compassion for her. So I asked her how she was doing. And she confessed to me that it had been a really tough three months where she actually felt like she was living with a lion who kept putting her in his mouth every hour or two and shaking her around. And that's a pretty graphic and alarming metaphor. But I re- personally, I remember those feelings very clearly, so I got it. Her mother's memorial was only a couple of weeks before this interview, and she had just buried her partner's ashes only days before the interview. But she told me that a huge grace occurred that freed her from the grief that dropped her to her knees and that she was now back in the saddle, ready to go again as we spoke. And she said that she was grateful to feel joy again. And she also mentioned that she was having a joyful day when we spoke and it was really, really apparent. Now, Jan is a deeply spiritual woman who graciously accepts the, way the, the ways of the universe without resistance, while knowing in her heart that the light never stops shining. And it's always just patiently just waiting there for us whenever we allow ourselves to move through the humanity of our natural emotional states. And she also said something really profound to me. Actually, there's so many profound things said throughout this interview, Uh, but this is actually before the interview, so I'm just going to share this with you. She mentioned that every morning she dedicates an hour of personal prayer to herself and her connection to a higher source. And on the morning before our interview, she watched a YouTube video of Leonard Bernstein uh, conducting the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on the day that the Berlin Wall came down. And this video moved her to tears. And then she told me that being moved to tears is her favorite way to start her day because it means that her heart and her brain are twinned. Isn't that awesome? Heart and brain are twinned. I love that. So in that moment, I have to admit, my heart just burst wide open and I knew with absolute certainty that it was no fluke that this beautiful woman had entered my life. And this is how it is when we live from faith. Faith that the universe never gives us more than we can truly handle. And faith that light can even be found in the darkness of grief when we remember that we're never ever truly alone. Now, I really, really, really loved speaking with Jan. She's wise, she's sharp, she's loving, and she's got a really awesome sense of humor. And admittedly, you know, like I was, I was doing a lot of laughing, so my cheeks were sore, and I think I got a few more laugh lines along the way with this interview. Hey, but you know, that's not a bad thing. Rather have those than frown lines. Jen is a true status quo crusher with a massive heart full of joy. 
And as I previously mentioned, there are so many incredible nuggets of wisdom in this interview that I don't even know where to begin. Except maybe at the beginning. So with that said, enjoy this week's very inspiring interview with Jan Phillips. I want to thank you for coming on this on this call, on this interview and being part of this project because, um, you know, when when I first started reading about you, I just felt this really strong energetic connection to your work. And I feel really honored to be talking to you today. Well, I feel honored to be part of this conversation of consequence. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Um, and... You know, when I was looking through your websites, I mean, you've done so much. You've got, you're the, uh, you're an activist, which I totally resonate with. You're an author, an artist, a visionary thought leader, a speaker, and you're also the co-founder of the, and and executive director of the Living Kindness Foundation. Um, I mean, you've got a lot going on and uh, Felicia was telling me about so many other things that you, you've been, you've been doing as well, like a. There was a was it a peace journey that you did? I made a peace pilgrimage around the world in not from 1982 to 84. That was uh, me as a feminist photographer sharing a slideshow on the U.S. and Canadian peace movement, and I also had one on the women's movement. So I traveled, started in Japan, and just kept going west until I came, ran out of $5,000 is what happened. I promised, I saved up $5,000 and I had 200 rolls of film. And I said, when my money runs out, I'll come home broke. And I lasted a year. That's amazing. And shortly afterward, the Berlin Wall came down. So I knew I was effective. (laughs) (laughs) For one brick anyway. Probably more than that. <laughs> so, okay, so I what I'm curious to know how you came to this really purposeful, meaningful life of yours. I mean, you can go back as far as you'd like, but you know, the, in a world that's filled with so much indifference and conformity, you stand out. So, so how did you come to this path where you're, you know, you're shifting the paradigm by connecting the dots between creativity, spirituality, and inspired action, which I think is the most important component. Yes. Okay, I'll nutshell it, because since it started when I was 12, in sixth (laughs) grade, well, it started because I was born gay, right? So, of course, I'm bullied, and, of course, I become this shy little inward drawn-in kid who, like, is in a cocoon, but my sixth grade nun teacher, Sister Helen Charles, decided to try out this new psychological phenomenon called positive reinforcement on me. And it worked. And so I felt like she turned me from a caterpillar into a butterfly. And I made the decision at age 12. I became a a total leader at age 12. When we had class elections, every single vote from the classroom was for Jan Phillips, except mine, of course. And, well, then I couldn't be president or vice president because only boys could be that. But I could choose between secretary and treasurer, even though the whole class knew I got all the votes. So she totally transformed my life. And I made the mistaken decision 
to become a nun because I thought nuns had some kind of magic wand. If she could do that for me, and I figured I need to be a nun so I could do that for other people. So it made my high school career pretty easy because I never had to think, what am I going to be when I grow up? Because from age 12, I knew I would be a nun. However, after two years, I was there long enough to learn the magic formula for bliss for me, which is equal parts of solitude, community, prayer, and service. But after two years, I was kicked out largely because of my being so radical. I was like a union organizer in a Walmart for them. <laughs> Plus, they were de desperately fearing my, you know, lesbian nature. So they let me go, which was the worst trauma of my life that took me a, more than two decades to finally forgive. And... As a result, I lost my community and I lost my church when uh, when I came out. So the gift of that was I had to learn how to become a priest for myself. And I became a priest of the imagination. And so it was the women's movement that saved my life because I had to replace. I have to have community. I think every creative person has to have community. And if you don't find it, then you, we have to make it for ourselves. But luckily, I found the women's movement in the early 70s. And that was the community that not only saved my life, but kind of gave me my life because I learned the personal is political and the power of stories. It was the consciousness raising groups and the storytelling that gave us all PhDs in cultural conditioning in, hum in our own human potential. So that's what caused me to be an activist. I felt my first oppression that I really know noticed was oppression against gays and lesbians, and that's where I first started speaking out. But really it was the women's movement where I discovered it wasn't just gay and lesbian, it was women in general who have been silenced for centuries and then I really got mad and went through my phases of you know militant dyke blah 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 and now I'm totally happy with hey I get slightly frustrated but I don't get too agitated but every move I make is a move toward the light wow that's that's <laughs> that's a really powerful story now can you explain a little bit about how you came about creating the, the Living Kindness Foundation? First of all, explain what it is and, and then how it came about. Yes. Um, I was at a point a few years ago where I said, I think it's time for me to do global work and big work and put myself into, into some risks. So I, said, I, I woke up one night in the middle of the night with this word living kindness on, in my mind, and I wrote it down in my journal, and I didn't know what to make of it. And I lived with it for two years thinking, what am I supposed to make of living kindness? And then it became clear to me that that had something to do with the work I was about to do. So my questions about it was, what is the work, where is the work, and what am I supposed to do? The answers that came from my morning prayers were, 
The work is in Africa because that's where humans first stood up. That's where the most the, the most crisis in the world is occurring, and that's where I could do some good. What the work was going to be had to do with my desire. What did what areas? If I had a magic wand, what areas would I fix? It had to do with women and the education of kids. So those were my identified things. And the work was, I'm always trying to role model something other than the Superman model of, of one heroic person doing one heroic thing. So I decided I wasn't going to do it by myself, although it's tons easier to do it by yourself, to would just go to Africa and be done with it. But I'm, I am really trying to role model good behavior. So I decided to wait until I could, I cast out in search of a co-founder, in search of a, co, a colleague to work with me so that we could co-found living kindness together. And that would be the organization that would be the vehicle for our work to be done in the area of women, kids education in Africa. Anything above and beyond that was sheer mystery. So it took me a year to find a person for whom those issues were the issues and who said, yes, I want to go to Africa. So she goes, so we shook hands on it and we were in Cleveland in a diner, shook hands on it. She goes, well, what do we do now? I said, well, now the universe has to act because we don't know what to do. So you know, tune your ears to the great below, pay attention. Pretty soon you're going to get a message. And I was on my way to do some work with some Dominican nuns in New York. The day I got there, she calls me up. I'm in this convent in the mother house. She calls me up. She goes, I just got the message. We were invited by a Dominican nun to go to her NGO, well, first, to deliver a leadership training seminar to her community of Nigerian sisters in, in Nigeria. And she is in charge of an NGO that works in 20 tribal villages with women and building schools for kids. Do you want to go? And I said, buy the tickets today. Let's go. I didn't even check the weather. I should have because it was way too dang hot there. But we went right away. We did the leadership training with her community of sisters. And then we went and visited the villages. And then we selected one that needed more. It was a village where they had a school, but no teachers could make it because of no roads there, navigation problems. So we decided to build a learning center that had attached to it rooms for two teachers to live there. And that was three years ago. And right now, today, the villagers are building the bricks. Oh, that's amazing. So now what is it that you're hoping to accomplish with this, this foundation? Well, it's a twofold thing because you always want to have one foot in in your own local area and one foot over, right? So that's the global reach. But our local reach is it's a very novel idea to fundraising. The idea is how can we have fun here, learn something, and raise money at the same time? So I'm now producing these art and activism symposiums for women called Women's Voices, Women's Visions. 
And we come together. The first one was 120 women. We came together for Thursday through Sunday afternoon. And we do Eve Talks, which are like TED Talks. What they're called Eve Talks stands for expressing values that are evolutionary. So women have 15 minutes to deliver a story that talks about how they use their creativity to have a positive impact in the world, how they know and measure their success, and they have to present it in an entertaining way so that the audience is inspired and not just informed. And then we have breakout salons where people, where every woman gets to go to a class that helps her forward her activist reach in the world. So could be how to get better at social network, how to understand how to do a, you know, a crowdfunding video, could be how to better write protest poetry, you know. So there's like 20, 30 different salons to choose from. And then there's art immersion for three hours where you can only pick something that's absolutely right brain creative oriented. So you go to either singing, shaman, ceremony making, painting, digital storytelling, or digital photography, and you immerse yourself for two and a half or three hours in that so that you feed your soul in all the ways that you can. So we did the first one last year. I'm now planning the second one that's at Skidmore College in upstate New York, and I'm doing one here in San Diego. I just organized my team, and that's going to be in October. So living kindness. So all the conference money that people pay for their fee goes right into living kindness, which goes right to Nigeria first to build the, you know, because we need 25,000 and we've already sent 10 first to build the, the place and then to outfit it with solar panels and laptops and pay the salary of teachers. So it's an ongoing, it's our ongoing solidarity with our sisters and brothers on the other side of the world. Oh, wow. So it sounds like it's a big project, an ongoing big project, but it sounds like it's fun at the same time, like you mentioned. Because if it's not fun, you can't do it. <laughs> exactly. It's against the rules to do something that's not fun. Here's how <laughs> Rumi says it. The eyes are here for seeing, but the soul is here for joy. <laughs> That's so true. So the first question is, is it fun enough for me to do it? And if we all if we if we all lived with that question in our hearts, can you imagine that alone would shift the world? That would shift the world completely. That would shift this crazy paradigm. I think so. <laughs> How many people do things they wake up every morning and they're not looking forward to going to where they have to go? Wow. You know, even when I see the license plates that say I'd rather be, yeah. it's like, oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> that is a dangerous thing. Come on. I'd rather be doing what I'm doing right this moment. Then you're fully present. Exactly. <laughs> I'd rather be here and now. That's the thing. <laughs> It's so simple. It always comes down to the, the most ridiculously simple things. And that's when we're actually living life properly. That's true. <laughs> now, you, you have this 
brilliant quote that you kind of alluded to a little bit in in what in your previous answer but this brilliant quote and it, quote and it says no matter how brilliant our attempts to inform it is our ability to inspire that will turn the tides and when i first read that it resonated so deeply with me and I love it. And I, I know what it means for me, but I'd love if you could expand on what it means for you. Yeah, because I think people can read 500 self-help books looking for information, but it's never information. It's always inspiration that moves us forward, right? It's never the will. It's never the will that'll accomplish the thing. It's the imagination. And so when we're inspired, which is why we work with the arts and in the arts and, and create our lives with artistry, because the arts keep the heart involved. So our attempts to inform our cerebral, it's information. It's like, what do you do with all those what do you do with all those nonprofit letters you get in the mail from, you know, Greenpeace and the forest people and the whale people right in the dump? What do you do when you watch a, a one minute video thing that's got one person telling one little story about one little thing you can do to make a difference that touches your heart? You go right to PayPal and send twenty five dollars. So it's the arts and the story that inspire us. It's the information that depresses us. So what we're looking for is new ways to deliver hope and new visions. Information about how it is does not help us. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that that's, that's a lot of the problem well, that's one of the big problems definitely in this world that is so left brain focused is that we've lost that connection to our heart because we've lost connection to the fact that we've all, you know, incarnated as creative beings. And this culture that we live in has is kind of drummed that out of us. It's, it's pulled that out of us. So I guess what um, the next question I'd like to ask is like, with this polarization in consciousness, you know, because our, our, you know, we live in this status quo culture where creativity isn't the norm. How do you personally stay, how stay true to your own core essence in a world that is so polarized in consciousness? Well, every creative thing that I do addresses the polarization in a joyful way. It's like Buddha saying, engage with joy in all the sorrows of the world, right? Engage with joy in all the sorrows of the world. I don't even, I'm not even going around saying there's a problem. You know, the greatest mystic scientist that's ever affected my life was Teilhard de Chardin. He was a Jesuit priest. I read him in the novitiate. Total mystic paleontologist. And he says, he refers to evil as the statistical necessity of an organism in the process of complexifying. Now, that's a trip. It's a troublesome statement because it's quite heady. But what it means is human, the whole human being 
one of us is an organism that's evolving itself forward, moving towards higher levels of complexity. I am like, I think of myself as a cell in the right brain of God, right? So the, or you could say a cell in the right brain of the big human, right? I'm a, I'm a small part of something very huge, which is also evolving itself. Like the cell in my thigh is evolving itself. And so is the human being that the thigh is part of, right? So I'm, I don't now think of it as, pro, I don't call it problems. I don't say it's a struggle. My language is much more like fun-oriented, play-oriented, but all of my creative work, like right now the book that I'm working on is called Busting the Creativity Myths. Okay, why am I doing that? Because 20 years ago, I stood in front of a group of women writers who were committed to spend one whole week as women writers to improve their writing. And they all sat there and told me why they're not writing. And that's when I fully understood the intensity with which we have been silenced. Everyone's reasons were different. I don't have time. I don't have space. I don't have a husband that supports me. I have children always in my hair. I don't think I have a story worth telling. I can't stand all the rejection, blah, blah, blah. We all know. But every one of those is a myth, right? And so I'm just calling attention to, hey, you guys, here's the myths that have kept you uninspired. Take them apart. It's like the myth of Adam and Eve. It's a myth of atonement. It's a myth that Jesus died for your sins. Well, those are not the creativity myths, but those are myths that keep people infantilized, right? So the creativity myths, because people are trying to figure out how come I'm not inspired? Why am I feeling dull and why do I keep watching CSI reruns? Why don't I have a project that sets me on fire? Why can't I be more like Jan Phillips, right? So <laughs> I'm saying, here's why. Because take a look at this myth. If you think that myth is true, just dismantle it. Because we don't have to work to take apart. You don't have to have a hammer and a chisel to take apart the Berlin Wall of myths. You have to just have awareness. Once you have awareness that it's a myth, you go, well, screw that. I'm not going to give that any power anymore, right? The myth, the whole myth of Christianity, you know, it's like you decide for yourself. Religion is a set of inherited beliefs. Faith is the some is a spirituality that you create, right? So we're talking, and creativity is your faith in running shoes. Creativity is your spirituality in running shoes. It's what you make of what you believe. So for me, I, I have a very joyful approach. I make music. I have three CDs. I have a ton of videotapes that I spend a whole week making a videotape that I upload to YouTube for the world to see. I don't make money from that necessarily, but it's my joyful work. You know, when I see 75,000 people have watched a video of mine and a few of them comment nicely, it's, it's very cool. But you have to be careful because one comment will say, oh, my God, I love your video. I start every day with it. It's the greatest thing since Velcro. The next, the next comment will be, you really need to see a psychotherapist. Right? 
So we can't set us up for relying on what people say or think about what we do. And that, to me, was the first thing I had to unlock in order to start being an activist. I had to say, I don't care what people think. I have nothing more to lose. You know, because of being gay, I was kicked out of the convent. I lost my church. I was disowned from my family. I was fired from a job. I lost an apartment. I had nothing else to lose. So I could be an activist. A lot of my friends couldn't. Young women with lesbians with kids back in the 70s couldn't be out because they would have custody cases. A lot of friends lost their children, right? It's not the same world today because of us. We've changed the world. I helped change this world so people are getting married now. And you also helped take down a few bricks of the Berlin Wall. You betcha. (laughs) Watch out, because then they'll say she has delusions of grandeur. You bet I do. I've never given them up. (laughs) You know, it's interesting what you were saying, you know, this, this workshop that you have for women with writer's block. And the, the excuses that keep coming up because, <clears throat> you know, this is something that frustrates me with the work that I'm doing too, because it seems like you and I are on parallel paths, obviously doing it in our, in our own respective, creative, unique ways. But I can see the light in so many people. I can see it and it frustrates me that they can't see it themselves and they come up with these ridiculous excuses that are always outside of themselves these externally referenced um, excuses that they bring inside and they they use those excuses to keep them small and it sounds like that's exactly what you were saying too and when you when you talked about um your work that you had nothing to lose and then you felt that fire and it's inside that's an internally referenced passion and fire that motivates you what so i I, what i'm seeing i'm kind of thinking out loud here is that how do you like you probably have some tips and techniques and tools that that might help but how do people shift from the fear that comes from outside of them to remembering the power that they have inside of them. Because, I mean, if you and I can see the light inside of these people, then they know on a, at least on a subconscious level that it's there. And how do we bring that out? How do we bring that out so that they're confident staying in that power and not being afraid of what's outside anymore? Because like you, I don't really give a damn what people think, you know, because it feels so good inside of my body. I know that what I'm doing is right, but that's not common. So you've got more experience with this than than I do. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Well, I think it's really important that we ask the questions that matter. And we always go through an exercise in my workshops It's a piece of paper they fill out, and it's called Inquire Within. In the old days, remember, you'd go by a window, and it would have room for rent, Inquire Within, right? (laughs) So uh, this is an Inquire Within, and it asks, you know, there's questions and then blanks for people to fill out. But it asks the questions that help people discern, you know, what, what gifts do you feel that you have? You know, what inspires you? What have you ever done that you think inspires 
someone else? What arts do you expose yourself to? What is the impact of these arts on you? What, you know, who, who were your teachers? To whom are you a teacher? You know, like a whole, it's just like a self-inquiry experience that allows people to slow down and reflect on who they are. And you really have to make a commitment to honor yourself and to get some assistance with figuring out what are your best steps for being, you know, we're, we're supposed to be the light of the world, you know, and I, my experience, I often talk about, you know, everyone needs metaphors. And so I always talk about us as light bulbs because say everyone's born, we all come into the world like hundred watt bulbs. And so we have a certain radiance and then we go through life and every experience that we have is like dirt and debris on our bulb. And if you can't figure out that that happened for you instead of to you, you can't, you can't rub it off and keep clean. So your bulb goes 80 watt, 60 watt, 20 watt. You know, everyone has had lunch with a 10 watt person <laughs> and it is no fun, right? So, you know, to be able to see the transformation is an understanding that our souls have a big desire for adventure. The body is in the service of the soul. The adventure is what the soul summons as grist for its creative mill. We call it calamities, disasters, you know, but the soul makes something of the ordeal. It masters the ordeal. The mastery of the ordeal is the creative act. That in itself is what causes the human being to feel purpose and passion and bliss. So that's the truth. It's like country western music does this with divorce, right? have the divorce, they call it a disaster, and then they start to master it. Massive amounts of Jim Beam, right? Lots of alcoholism because there's a lot of pain, but then eventually it becomes a song that wins the Grammy and the whole world is two-stepping to it. Right? <laughs> and the songwriter hopefully has mastered the ordeal and understands there no there is no need for forgiveness because it was a gift that yes. occurred. And hopefully the Jim Beam is a thing of the past then too. Well, yeah, but it you know part, running away is a part of everyone's process. It's so true. You know everyone's process. Some people do marathons. Some people drink vodka. It's just how do you <laughs> run away? That's so true. And you know I. It, I'm as I'm hearing you talk it's reminding me of my own story you know I have a very similar story I kind of came out of the womb an activist but it wasn't until I I lost my mother in a very unpleasant way a few years ago and then I ran away by taking on an Ironman race an Ironman triathlon 
And it wasn't until I crossed the finish line where everything just collapsed on me. And that was when I had to find myself and I had to, I emerged a much stronger, more inwardly focused person that I am now. And nothing can stop me now because it's like you said, you know, nothing can stop me now because I realize the power that's within and I've connected to my purpose and there's just no going back. But, you know, it seems like for a lot of the people that, um, that I meet who, who are as deeply purposeful as yourself and myself and a number of the people that I'm interviewing is that it takes some kind of a calamity or tragedy to kind of shake them awake, to, to shake the debris off of that bulb and have it firing at more than a hundred Watts again. Um, I don't really know, like, is there, <laughs> there's gotta be an easier way to wake people up than to have everybody go through tragedy. And even that's not a guarantee. Cause I know a number of people who've had really crappy lives and they just remain victims to them. So I don't know. What are well, your- I know, but the huge, the moment of transformation is the moment when they're invited to consider those disasters the major turning points of their lives, which gave them wisdom. The wisdom is inherent in the tragedy. But until you mine it and harvest it, as long as you keep, for 20 years, I kept calling it a disaster. They kicked me out of the comet. They did this to me. They, they were terrible to me. It was like milking my sad story until I finally went through the last step of sitting with my, the provincial director, the head honcho of the convent and saying, would you please just let me listen to this? Would you let me tell the story? Will you listen to this story without interrupting me and let me cry as much as I will through it? And she said, yes, I will. And she did. And at the end, she says, will you forgive me for this terrible injustice that was done to you? And I said, yes, sister, I forgive you. And she said, will you forgive the entire community of the Sisters of St. Joseph for this terrible injustice that was done to you? And I said, yes, sister, I forgive the community. And at that moment, the whole cloud just disappeared and this rainbow came just filling the sky metaphorically speaking but what happened is the inside of me said nothing to forgive nothing to forgive the greatest blessing of your life was they let you go they let you go because you took two years to understand the distinction between faith and spirituality and that's what you were there for and to be turned on to the mystic Teilhard de Chardin the activist Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the monk Thomas Merton. And as soon as you had your backpack full of that, you could go and be the priest in the world you came to be. Nobody came here to be a nun that can't even have any power in the Catholic Church. Well, that's a bad statement. I take that statement back because there's some brilliant nuns doing great work, but I was not meant to be a nun. Hmm. Well, that's a really, that's a very powerful story. And it's, you know, what strikes me the most is the forgiveness. And, you know, again, that resonates with me because it wasn't until I got to that stage in my 
own healing journey where I forgave that I had the rainbows as well. So it sounds like, it sounds like that's the key. That's the key to unlock the, uh, (laughs) it's just, it's so simple and it's not, you know, because forgiveness, forgiveness, so many people think forgiveness, they think forgiveness, but forgiveness is more a visceral thing. Like I know for myself, when I thought that I forgave, um, without getting into my whole story, cause it's not necessary. This is about you. But when I thought that I forgave, it wasn't enough. But when I felt, when I felt it in my body on a visceral level, I collapsed, cried. And then finally, all of a sudden the rainbow showed. So thank you for sharing that. Cause forgiveness is so, so powerful. Um, but don't re- don't forget this. There's nothing to forgive. We step toward forgiveness. We make the commitment to move in the direction of forgiveness. And that brings with it the grace of understanding. There's nothing to forgive because that incident was a turning point that our soul needed. Our soul asked for it. Yep, that actually, that, (laughs) okay, you got me there. Yeah, you got me there. That makes it so much more powerful. Yes, I, yes, I get it. Totally agree with that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Wow, (laughs) that's profound. That is profound. Yes. Um, It's joyful. It is. I feel like I just saw another rainbow. (laughs) Right. Metaphorically. <laughs> it's good news. So it's hopefully, a new Bible. It's yes. good news. Hopefully there's other listeners out there who are seeing rainbows too. <laughs> I hope so. Um, now, with the work that you've been doing, you know, for so much change in the world, what is it that gives you the hope to keep on going? You're such a joyful person. So I, I'm assuming you must have a heart full of hope. So... Hope. Yeah. You know, hope to me is like a container. Hope holds the future until it becomes today. It doesn't call for any work. It's kind of a, it's kind of passive. It's like a placenta. It holds and protects the future until it enters into reality. So I am aware that that we're evolving and I am aware that that as a human species we're in the process of becoming divine so I don't have to hope I I mean I feel like I kind of just know that in my bones and in my marrow I don't have to hope I just am happy that I'm part of it and I'm doing a really good job you know I almost died a few years ago. I had a car accident where I was thrown into a field and my car landed on top of me and burned. I was under the muffler. It was in Death Valley in August. I was under the, it was hot enough to begin with, but then I was under the muffler and got third degree burns all over my back and my hip is all burned away. But when I finally, and I was unconscious for a while, but when I finally woke up, and realized that I was alive, I I had a funny feeling that I it was as if, if there is a heaven, 
I am really glad because I'm going to be happy to report I did the best that I could do. And I was really proud. It was almost like, let me at it. If there are pearly gates, there ought to be a standing ovation for me. Peter ought to stand up. You know, because that's the diligence with which I live my life. But that's also commensurate to the joy that I feel every day. I wake up and devote my first hour to the invisible forces. And then I'm fortified to face whatever comes. Wow. I have to say, my cheeks are starting to get a little bit sore from all the smiling. And that's a good thing. That's a good problem to have. Oh, that's a good <laughs> problem. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so, my cheeks are always wet. <laughs> crying <laughs> crying for joy i always cry for joy just it's awe it's the problem with awe yeah yeah i get it i get it yeah mine are either wet or they're sore <laughs> and it's yeah they're they're interrelated the cheeks, they get a workout i tell you <laughs> they do they do they're really underrated <laughs> so we're gonna go uh you know knock on the pearly gates with really beautiful laugh lines that's for sure Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so now you, you kind of touched on it briefly about how consciousness is shifting. And, you know, there's one thing, you know, how you say you, you, with the hope, you feel it. So you don't need to hope you feel it. Well, there's a there's a part of me that feels that as well. Like I feel really, really like I know that there's if we look at the reality, and I say that in quotation marks of the world, it can be really dark and really, really ugly out there. But inside of me, I feel, I feel that there's something bigger that's going on that's shifting. And it's not just happening to me. This is happening on a much bigger level that I can't, you know, I can't really, I can't say anything tangibly, but it's a feeling more than anything. And based on your years as an artist and an activist, I'm just wondering if you feel that there is a shift in consciousness that's uh, connecting people more to their hearts, the truth in their hearts. And if you're noticing that, what is it that you're noticing that supports this observation? Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is I spent about an hour a while ago watching children under the age of 13 audition for Australia's next talent, America's, Britain's next talent, China's next talent, Korea's next talent. And I was in tears the whole time to notice the level of talent in the, in the human beings and the youngsters that are coming up now. I really think that we're evolving in a very exponential way and that we're seeing it as it happens because of our global interconnectedness so to be able to witness it like a hundred years ago impossible to know you know war would break out in denmark and no one would know it for weeks but now we know it in seconds so that gives me hope the other thing is the leadership among the young, like under 30s, the kind of innovative thinking that our youth are doing, high schoolers, 
what they're working on in their science fairs has great relevance to the world at large. No, there's so few of them that are working without a passion about creating a better world. You know, that wasn't part of the equation in my youth. You know, because A, we thought we had no power. We thought it was happening to us. But the kids today know it's happening through us. And that is a sign of evolution. It's undoubtable. So I, I what's what's it can't be refuted. You just can't you can't it can't be refuted. People will try, I guess, to say there's no such thing as evolution, but I don't care. I don't need to talk to them. <laughs> I try to imagine, you know, if I try to imagine having lunch with people like Rush Limbaugh and because I wouldn't turn it down, but I would have to do so much pre-thinking about the questions that I would ask him that would elicit a higher kind of thinking. You know, and I think the greatest, you know, Tony DeMello always said, the greatest gift you can give to your friends is to challenge their thoughts. Mm -hmm. But nobody likes it. But I do that. I challenge people's thoughts. And the first, I, whenever I give us, you know, if I, the first five minutes of every workshop is a warning that they're going to experience their thoughts being challenged and to set themselves up for feeling gratitude about that instead of getting mad at me. Because it's a gift. I'm giving them a gift, but they're going to be mad, you know. <laughs> but because, you know, the, the, the quality of true genius is the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time and not go crazy. <laughs> You know, and you, you know, you are always making reference to the polarities and the dualities and the difficulties that we experience being part of a culture that's dualistically driven. And that's true. And the solution to the problem is part of it. I don't know. But whenever I'm feel, whenever I feel really strong one way, I quickly orient myself to, to make a case for the other way. Mm. I quickly, you know, if we're, are we invading Iraq? Oh man, that's the worst thing we could do. We'll make a case for why invading Iraq would be beneficial just to keep me from being dualistic. Hmm. Make a case, making a case for pro-life is really difficult, but I work at it in order to keep me beyond dualism. Because the place we are striving to be is the place of oneness, which is the place of divinity and the place of peace in the present. So that's the work. It's our mind work all day long. That is a lot of work. That is a lot of work. Actually, you know, listening to you talk, I'm thinking about the opposite of some of the beliefs that I have and whew. Yeah, that's a challenge. But you're right. I mean, that really is the only way to overcome the duality of this this uh, paradigm that we're living in right now. And, you know, bringing it into unity, divinity, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, okay, you've just inspired me to do some really tough work here as well. Because the best leaders, 
the the leaders who can really have some power and impact are the people that can be with anybody and say, I this is what we have in common. Mm-hmm. No matter who you're with. I try to do it in my neighborhood. You know, it's not that easy. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> this is what we have in common. Are you kidding? Oh my god. <laughs> work it is constant work but it's like working out it's like a yoga session (laughs) yoga of commonness yeah turbocharged yoga session too (laughs) i'll say in my neighborhood (laughs) well okay just a couple more questions here now if you could invite listeners to to do just one thing to make a difference in their own lives that would have an impact on a greater scale what would it be? I think I think a good exercise is to imagine. First, we have to identify an area where we can have an impact. You know, my friend Ruth, who I'm writing the book with, she's a painter. And she tries to put a paintbrush in my hand, and I get paralyzed in, with that. I beg for a camera. She says, Jan, the hardest thing for any creator is to know, or for any painter is to know what to paint. So to know where to put your focus is a big question for somebody who wants to be creative. So I always ask the question, well, take, take, look at the whole world. Look at, read a newspaper. If there was one thing that's wrong globally or in your neighborhood or in your family or wherever that you could fix if you had a magic wand for an hour, what would you fix? You know, I mean, Bill Gates had to ask himself that question. Where will I go? What will I fix? So what? He picked polio or malaria or something, and now he's nearly fixed it. For us, we, we identify the area. For me, all of my creative body of work, except for the first book, Making Peace, which was just me trying to figure out what the hell happened on that trip around the world. <laughs> that was that book. But from Mary or Muse, Divining the Body, God is at Eye Level, every single book that's now my body of work has got its start in that classroom where all those women writers said to me, this is why I'm not creative. And I said, aha, I know what the problem is. The silencing of women. And Betty Friedan, 50 years ago, said it's the problem with no name. And I say, now we know the name. It's called the silencing of women. And that's what every creative thing that I do addresses that. Whether I'm speaking about spirituality, because religion more than anything else has done it, whether I'm talking about any of the social issues because our culture is doing it, it's like no matter what I write about, underneath it all, it addresses the silencing of women. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's a problem that's so huge. It's so huge. And uh, yeah, I guess I think that, you know, listening to you speak about tapping into the creativity, it sounds to me like um, the creativity is part of the divine feminine. And tapping into that 
part of us that's been oppressed and silenced for so long is a way to reconnect to who we truly are at our core. And I guess when I say the divine feminine, I'm not necessarily singling out women too, because it's, it's within men as well. It's been that create creative voice has been silenced within men as well. I think you have to be backstep a little bit there to think if you're going to speak with spiritual terms, which I try not to, but I think to think of it as creativity is about divine balance. Mm, Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have equal masculine and feminine because it's when the poles come together, just like in your car battery, if you got one of those things off, it's not going to fly, you know, you're not going to go. So you have to have the negative attached and the positive attached in order to have the sparks fly. You have to have the sperm and the egg, Mm -hmm. the right brain and the left brain. So we cannot say it's about the creative feminine. We have to say, or I think reframe it to think about yeah, well, it's about creative balance, but what do we have to do in order to bring the feminine, the volume of the feminine up? Ah, okay. Male voice is 100 decibels. Female voice globally is probably 20 decibels. So what do we have to do to bring the volume up of the feminine? Yes, that makes more sense. Absolutely. <laughs> Just have to do some work with you. Hey. well some play with me (laughs) hey if you can break barbara marks hubbard out of a a creative writer's block block. (laughs) yeah you've got some some divine power going on there yes i do (laughs) okay now you keep referencing this magic wand so this is the last question because i have one and i'm going to give it to you and you can do whatever you want with it. You get to wave it over the entire planet. And I would love to know what kind of world you would create with that magic wand. Okay, it's pretty simple. Every person has rice or cereal in their bowl. Every child is going to school. Everybody has access to the information they need. Everybody has work that feels right for them. The end. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You're amazing. Am I? Yes, you are. You are. My cheeks really did get a good workout. Thank you so much, Jan. I'll tell you you why. It's better to do a Skype than to write a book. It's better to be interviewed than to sit down and try and say, what do I know? Because when you're interviewed and somebody's asking you questions, then spirit moves and surprises come. There's some beautiful nuggets here. Thank you so So much. Let's just thank the forces that be that we cannot see for the wisdom that gets to come out of us when we come together. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. Talk to you soon. Et voila! I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Powerful, inspiring, and packed full of so much wisdom to help you navigate life in a more authentic, joyful, and powerful way. 
And since the overarching theme for this podcast was all about living a life with joy in your heart, this is also going to be the theme for this week's inspired question. So my question to you this week is, what does living a joyful life mean to you? Now, I just want to throw out a few little tips, not to lead you. Well, yeah, maybe just to kind of give you a little bit of direction, but not to lead you. You're still supposed to come up with your own answers. But I want to just say that living joyfully doesn't mean living in a blissed out state of forced nirvana. Okay, because that's usually what's perpetuated out there in the world of, you know, that world, the world that just kind of tells you how to think. Um, status quo? Yeah, that's what it's called. What it means is being able to harvest the nuggets of wisdom that present themselves in every life experience. Now that's both the, the ones you label good as well as the ones you label as bad. And it also means giving yourself a break when you're not feeling up to par. So joy is really just all about self-acceptance for the truth of who you are at the core of your being. Okay. I just wanted to make that clear so that it's, that it's really, really clear that joy is actually quite easy. So that said, how would all of that look to you? Now, as always, I'm going to be posting all of Jan's information and a couple of powerful videos that she created in the show notes on my website at debelzarco.com. And Jan's also going to be up in my neck of the woods from May 23rd to 28th on Cortez Island at Hollyhock, leading a workshop titled Tools for Transformation. So anyone out on the West Coast or, you know, anyone planning to visit the West Coast, you could check out this workshop, which I'll link to in the show notes. And for those of you back East, Jan's going to be following the Hollyhock trip with a week-long workshop at the Omega Institute from June 1st to 6th. And she's going to be leading this workshop about finding your spiritual path. And once again, I'm going to link to that in the show notes back at debozarco.com. So there you have it. That's a wrap. The end of another Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world.